Welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. This is part two of our interview with Meredith Maguire on the subject of lived religion, um, interviewed by Martin Lepage. Um, to find the first part of this interview and many other interviews on method and theory in the study of religions, go to www.religiousstudiesproject.com. Thanks for listening. What co- connections do you make between the study, the anthropology, and the sociology of religion and gender studies um, in regards to your methods Mm -hmm. as well as um, as your analysis and what you what you could observe on the field Mm -hmm. So you're wanting to know about the methodological aspect of, of what I'm doing, or uh, any kind of connections really that you can make between the study of religion uh-huh. and, and anthropological sense and uh, the study of gender. Mm-hmm. Which what are where's the knot? Well, I'm not sure I could answer that question. Uh, I think. A lot of the things that I ended up picking up on pertaining to gender studies was a combination of just accident, like happening to bump into it, somebody to interview and finding out that they've had some amazing experiences and that they thought about the gender relations connected with that. Uh, and at the same time, a lot of my other research over the years has focused on gender roles and I've really enjoyed especially talking to um, what were then probably accurately considered peasant women uh, and what they understood about their own gender roles and what they wanted for their daughters and what was what did they consider to be something that was a realistic change that they were making or trying to make or hoping to make in their lives. And uh, those kinds of conversations really showed me how relatively well-educated, fairly isolated peoples. um, The first project I did was in the early 70s in Ireland, Western Ireland. Um, most of the people were English speaking in the area where I was. They weren't Gaelic speaking, but but uh, talking to those women, they had a lot of interesting ideas about gender roles and so forth. And uh, it was fun going back to visit years later. But what I'm saying is, I don't see that the methodology is that different. Um, I think that you need to be in the field enough to have a real sense what people are communicating to you and not being I have very little very little appreciation for somebody who goes in and does a 20 minute interview and comes away with the notion that they understand somebody's culture you know I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit but you know it takes you a long time living with people before you even know whether or not they mean the same things by certain words that you do and uh, I would say that the first three to five months I was living in Ireland, I didn't know enough about their way of life to be able to phrase a question that would mm. get an answer that 
meant what I thought it meant. Um, that didn't mean I wasn't learning anything, but it meant that my interviews weren't very good and I had to start all over again on a couple of questions. But I did try them out on somebody I knew well enough to say to her, now you tell me when you think I've, I've got this question wrong. Well, I got an earful about a couple of them. Mm -hmm. Like one of the questions I asked was, what advice would you give your daughter about thus and such? And she said, I'd never dream of giving my daughter advice. I'm thinking, oh, this, this word must mean something different here because in the States, every mother wants to give her daughters lots of advice. <laughs> and, yes. and so it was pretty obvious that what she meant really was that if your parent told you that it was good for you to do this and such, it meant you'd better do that oh. or else, you know. And right. so uh, I had to change, change my wording of my questions and I had to ask, well, now how would I phrase this if I really wanted to find out what she hopes her daughter would learn or what she, you know, she hopes her daughter would try to do or whatever, you know, and, and um, eventually I got, I got the answers, but it didn't come fast. And doing a good ethnographic um, work, even if you have the same language, you can't make those assumptions until you are there for a while and talk to people a lot. Am I wrong if I say that the embodied result of a practice or a faith is maybe uh, the consequence or uh, this is where you can look at what people do in regards to issues of power, domination, oppression, or even just this binary standard of gender mm -hmm. or uh, the definition of, of a healthy body, of a normal body, body, mm -hmm. body. Um, what um, do you think that uh, embodiment is the locus of lived religion? Well, it certainly is a, an important locus. I'm not sure that we ever completely grasp somebody else's embodied religion. Um, we can get good clues to it, but we don't necessarily understand it um, just by watching them do things. But I, I, there was something you said that I wanted to make sure I followed up on. Mm, what were we talking about just before that? We're talking uh, about... Uh, oh, I know what it was. <laughs> One of the things has to do with, in the field, I found that one of the hardest things to tell, but when it happened, you knew that you were on something, was when somebody was breaking an unspoken norm. Okay? So those are really important cues, but you can only observe it because, first of all, if you break the norm, they may not react to you the same as they would to one of themselves, one of their own group. So you have to wait until somebody in the group breaks a norm. You have to recognize that that's what's going on. And then you have to try to figure out how does the group handle it. 
And that's really hard depending upon how big the group is because you aren't necessarily going to be positioned near enough to some of the most powerful people in the group to see how each of them is responding to the broken norm. Uh, but I would say that, that for sociology of religion, that's an especially valuable methodological thing to be watching for. When is somebody breaking a really important norm? Um, and I have a, a several examples. But one of the ones that was most apparent to me and it was sufficiently serious broken norm that I was physically uncomfortable sitting there while they were trying to deal with the whole thing because I could tell that something really serious was going on. But what it was, was I was doing a study of a charismatic prayer group, a Catholic, Catholic Pentecostal style prayer group. And um, they had two sort of like official leaders. And then they had a group of maybe eight or nine um, particularly experienced, powerful members who were, who were also authoritative in that group. So the, and the total group was maybe 70, 75 people, but any given prayer meeting might be anywhere between 40 or 70 people mm -hmm. in the room, plus visitors occasionally and so forth. And they had some, some norms that were so strict that they would even announce them. Uh, they would announce at the beginning of the service that um, they recognized that there might be some visitors from other prayer meetings and stuff like that, that prayer groups that were there, and that they requested that only members of their group be uh, giving prophecies or uh, testimonies because uh, they were the ones who knew each other and, and knew that that was the right thing to be saying for that group. Um, and they welcomed testimonies from visitors only at certain parts of the service, which was pretty common that that, that, that would be a time when anybody, even somebody who wasn't um, hadn't been, hadn't received the gift of the Spirit, uh, um, was still allowed to speak during that mm -hmm. stage of the, of the testifying. But everything else was only for members, mm -hmm. only for people who had already received the gift of the Spirit. And one of their strongest norms was who could, pro who could say prophecies. Um, exactly right, because that's probably the most powerful form of, of speech in a, a charismatic group. But one of the more complicated things was who could say a prophecy in tongues? Mm -hmm. Because there was a strong belief that whenever somebody spoke a prophecy in tongues, somebody else would receive the interpretation, the gift of interpretation of tongues, so that you shouldn't have a situation where somebody gave a prophecy in tongues and nobody then interpreted it. Because that would be a sign that maybe that person's prophecy wasn't really from God. Okay, so then picture a prayer meeting where um, only one of the two main leaders was there, and then about seven or eight of the the core prayer, uh, prayer leaders were there, and a pretty large uh, other members were there, large number of others. Mm -hmm. 
And about a third of the way into the service, it already kind of felt strange to me because somehow or another there weren't as many prophecies at all coming up. And usually you didn't get prophecies in tongues until after there had been other prophecies as well. They're just, you know, so it was a little bit, it was almost like the spirit hadn't descended yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was, you know, I was an outsider. I, but I did sometimes pick up on sort of like when it was a really full of spirit type of activities versus when it was kind of sparse. And this is one of those sparse evenings. And uh, so there were a couple of little old ladies who gave kind of okay prophecies, but not very, not very rich and not very uh, uh, interesting or exciting. Or it, you didn't have the sense that this is definitely God speaking to this whole group. And then the key leader, the main one who was there that night, got up and spoke a very uh, animated and very firm-sounding prophecy in tongues. And he sat down, and we waited, and we waited, and we waited, (laughs) and nothing came. And, you know, I could tell that all the other leaders were getting really antsy because they hadn't received any gift of interpretation and yet the norm was that if God really wanted to speak to them that there'd be interpretation of tongues so uh, as I said everybody was getting really uncomfortable <laughs> and I always have you know we're sitting in s- concentric circles so I'm back about three or four rows I was dying to see what was on the faces, but I didn't dare because it was such a tense moment. Nobody was going to get up and go out to the bathroom or anything like that mm-hmm. at that moment. Sitting there trying to peek around the room and still keep my head bowed and so forth uh, to see if, if somebody was going to come up. Finally, okay, all this tension, the guy himself stood up and gave the interpretation. And that's sort of a broken norm, but it was a resolution. Okay, in other words, they couldn't move on until somebody resolved mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So it was a resolution. Nobody c- criticized or complained about it. But it was a really, and so watching for norms and when norms get broken and what is it that constitutes a norm. Uh, I also saw one prayer meeting where uh, a woman stood up and gave a prophecy, very, very impressive one. And then um, there was some sort of a comment made by one of the prayer group leaders that uh, that it was really important to test the prophecies because not all of the things that you think when you're praying are necessarily meant to be shared with the whole group. And so uh, he... He said, I just want to caution that um, it's very important for the entire group that everybody exercises a little bit of caution and, and don't just speak out when you've got an idea, but make really sure that it's something that God wants everybody to hear. Hmm. 
Okay, uh -huh, I thought that's interesting. I, I'm not surprised that he said it. But then when she said something later on, the ushers came and, and invited her to leave. Because, I mean, she was, she was the real reason why he had said that, you know. And I have no idea what it was that she said that offended them, but their notion was that whatever it was that motivated her to speak up then, uh, that uh, that was not what the group was supposed to be listening to from God. Yes. So those are all kinds of things that in terms of methodology you have to watch for. Now that kind of a group is much more complex because obviously even if I could speak in tongues, which I couldn't because every time I tried, I started listening to myself to see what it sounded like. And then, of course, once you start listening to yourself, you can't keep it up. So you have to become totally unconscious of your own speech in order to do it. But even in a group like that where something is, is so prized and yet so accessible... You can't know for sure what is what is going to fit their norm, what isn't going to fit their norm. And so that would be true in any group. What What is it that would break the norm in this group? Um, in, in that case, maybe the performance did not, was not achieved successfully mm -hmm. and were the consequences ultimately also embodied the ask her to leave. You could not be here, you could not occupy the space, you could not be with the other, the, uh, the other members of the mm. group. Or um, while uh, the group was waiting for the other, the, 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 the translation yeah, of yeah. The prophecy, everybody was just stuck there, uh -huh. not moving and waiting. I think in that case, especially since the person had been such a long-term um, leader, it may have been either one of two things going on. One could be that he might not be legitimate as their leader much longer if that happened to him more than a couple of times. That he okay. would probably voluntarily step down because somehow or another he, he had lost his legitimacy as leader. Um, or the other thing that might be happening is that uh, they might just simply think that, well, maybe his ability to discern when God is actually wanting the whole group to hear it versus, and then they might take him aside and say, you know, maybe you shouldn't, shouldn't stand up so soon after you think that you've got uh, tongues to speak and stuff like that. But these are the kinds of ways by which groups can exert social control and mm. you as the observer haven't got a clear notion of exactly what's going on. But if you observe in that same group over a period of time, you'll discover a whole lot of communication, nonverbal communication especially, where people catching eye contact or a whole range of things. And at one stage of the game, I trained a research assistant to help me study in some of these groups. And she was, I was in my mid-30s and, yeah, and mother of two kids already. She was in her mid-20s, um, just a, just shortly after finishing uh, as an undergraduate. And she told me at one stage in the game, she said one of the prayer group leaders 
was actually flirting or at least had a number of postures and gestures that would have connoted flirting with women if if that was what was going on and I said you're kidding me I hadn't noticed it at all so I said well you know tell me what it looks like and then the next time I'll look for it she was absolutely right it was not necessarily meant as flirtation but it was one of the ways by which people who are flirting with somebody else get the other person's attention. <laughs> and so the very ways of getting attention have a certain sexuality that's linked with them as well. And it might only be recognizable, you know, within, say, a certain generation. <laughs> like my generation might flirt differently from your generation or something like that. Or it might be it might have been deliberately flirting for wanting to have an affair or something like that or maybe it was just a way of showing special attention to one person more than another person and so forth. but I thought man I am really getting old and matronly if I don't notice this flirting going on and my student notices it immediately on the first visit you know and those are, those are also things that become data Yep. You don't know for sure what they mean. And that's why if somebody hasn't been studying a group long enough, they might really misattribute it. They might really forget that there's a whole lot of, I don't know, pedophilia or something like that going on in the, in the group because of these uh, showing signs of attention to another person. Yeah. I've taken you too far afield from your questions, not, but not really. okay. Well, not so that those are those are the kinds of fieldwork things that are really fascinating, challenging. It's true in sociology of health and illness, but it's also true in in medic, um, I'm sorry, if if I were studying, for example, doctor-patient relationships, those are exact same kinds of things I'd be watching for. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. It's not something that I've seen a whole lot. There's research. There's research to be done still mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Oh, a lot. It's fascinating. And I think that the more we begin to understand body language and, and more we understand about how, um, how this is tied in with one's interpersonal effectiveness. So maybe, for example, if a college professor is showing that he's paying attention to his students, and they take it as he's coming on to me. It might be true, but it might also just be this is how I show I pay attention to you, you know. Uh, and when you stop to think about all the really painful things that happen to people when they misread cues, uh, then you realize that you know the consequences, the norms are there. And there's all kinds of really unpleasant consequences that happen when people misread those cues. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Dr. McGuire, maybe one last uh, question. Uh, how do you see the concept of lived religion evolve uh, in the future of the study of religion? Mm -hmm. How do you see that? What are your hopes? Yeah, okay. That's an easy one to answer because I think part of my hopes are that the concept will open people's eyes to a whole range of uh, practices that people are engaging in that previously weren't 
acknowledged as having anything to do with religion or spirituality. And, and so they are really worth studying, especially as our societies get more and more religiously complex and, and diverse and so forth. Those, those are really interesting things to watch. And so I think already we're beginning to see a great deal more awareness of that. I've had people studying, for example, Muslim practices uh, and practices in um, in interfaith marriages and how families negotiate those things. So many things that are out there that are worth studying through a lived religion perspective. Um, I especially expect that people will be taking religious experiences more seriously. Um, mm -hmm. I think that there's been far too much, even still now, far too much built-in tendency to try to reduce religious experiences to something else, mm -hmm. like to explain it as it's just a, a neurological uh, pattern or it's just a function of language, or it's just a function of some sort of brain waves uh, going on. And when you reduce something that's that profound hmm. to treat it as though it can be explained away um, by that, then you've really missed an important part of human behavior, behavior and experience. So I think that we're going to see more studies of religious experience where they actually do take into account the subjective experience but then also the intersubjectivity and here's where I, I want to be really cautious though because uh, some of these things could be tr turned into trivializing them uh, if we fail to understand how people can touch each other intersubjectively or who can have experiences where they are linked subjectively with each other in these brief moments of intersubjectivity because it'd be easy to trivialize it. It would be easy to talk about it as though it were an everyday kind of a thing or as though it were easily accessible to um, to research or what have you. It's very, very, very complex and at the same time it's really worth studying. And so I, I think that that's the good thing that I'm hoping is going to happen to get away from the reductionism, to get away from explaining religion and religious experience as being just a manifestation of something else. That said, So I, so I think it's exciting, but I also fear that it's going to be a sort of a buzzword and mm. then it's going to get overused and, and then how are you really coming up with data? Mm. Um, so I hope that as your generation starts looking at more and more of those kinds of things and trying to figure out how to do really deep research about something like that, that you find ways of trying to prevent it from being 
watered down to the point that you know you get come out with 200 dissertations using the term lived religion and none of them actually tapping the real substance of what is lived religion you know that's that's always a problem with any kind of in concept mm -hmm. and i think this one's very appealing because it's sort of like something that you can say, I always felt that they really didn't get it about my religion. So now I've finally got a term that describes my particular blend of practices. And that's that's fine for your you know self for your own um, understanding of your own practices. But when you try to turn it into a research project, it's really hard to operationalize. Not that it's impossible, um, but it's hard to operationalize without starting to add sort of like your own wish list of what you're going to find. And what if, what if when you study, for example, suppose that down the road there are many, many, many more interesting ways by which religion and gender role bending begins to begin occur. And you say, oh, wow, this is so great. And then what if it happens that most of them end up being just as authoritarian, just mm. as non-individual um, or anti-individual you know, that yes, they are doing something very different from the rigid old, you know, um, yeah, heterosexual normativity sort of thing. But they have the potential to be some pretty awful kinds of, of uh, beliefs and practices that end up hurting people just as much, only in a different way. Yes. Now, so then you've got, as a researcher, you've got to figure out some way of coping with the fact that you really want to understand what's going on here, and yet at the same time, oh my gosh, look at this. Is this, is this a dystopia that I've just discovered, you know? Uh, those, that's, that's a very real reality. That's part of the reason why in almost every chapter there's a little section on the dark side of that aspect of lived religion, because just as you can live a very peaceful and harmonious religion, you can also live a very hateful religion and you and putting it that into into practice in your everyday life could be pretty ugly thing to be studying. <laughs> yes. Well thank you for this interview. I'm sure that uh it's going to help a lot of young scholars and researchers understand the concept of lived yeah. religion better and use it mm -hmm. in the way that you that yeah. you intended. Or that it'll be an even better way than I've intended. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you Good. very much. I've enjoyed chatting with you. Yes. Thank you.